Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sackness. And Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? Might be morning for you. Still, still. morning, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, David. Thank you. I think I'm, uh, I, I have something different. Well, my, I, I wouldn't say it's much easier to cope with than what you're dealing with, but I'm, I'm pleased about it. I think uh-huh. I, uh, I think I now just really badly strained uh, my right calf muscle. It was pretty painful in the moment, but I'm just uh, doing the uh, exercise, the massage, myself, uh, swimming, and magic rituals with. Uh, Blowguns, music, uh, candle, and specially designed uh, target art, uh, and I think I'm 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 getting more mobile every every morning. So overall, good. Um, I've been uh, concerned about your situation though, so I'm pleased that you sound so good. Yeah. So for listeners. On uh, Sunday, I thought that I got food poisoning because of, I don't know, I thought that my my mother-in-law, who's a witch, uh, gave me like a cursed piece of chicken or something because she's been kind of grumpy towards me lately. Um, and I was like, oh, she got me, right? Just like a little, a little brujeria to, uh, to make my tummy upset. Monday hits and I have these weird this weird feeling in, in the tips of my fingers as though my hands have fallen asleep and then um, Monday night actually rolling over into Tuesday when the clock struck midnight I came down with these awful uh, chills and body aches and I went I did not sleep in my bed with Gus and Rio so I slept on the couch uh, Tuesday rolled around I had to you know kind of take care of Gus still kind of thinking like this must be like the worst food poisoning I've ever had um, I felt like Michael Jordan, you know, playing that championship game with the flu, you know, that was by far top 10 most difficult things I've ever done because, uh, what it turned out to be, dun, 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 was COVID. I contracted COVID. And I, and when I saw the test and it showed that it was positive, I was like, man, I hope I don't die from this. Cause then I'll be eating, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like all the... <laughs> crap that I've talked about COVID it's like if I die from this this is gonna suck because people like nobody's gonna be sad that I died I'm gonna be one of those cases of like haha told you blah 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 but I uh I don't know I just kind of know how to handle getting sick which is um I stay hydrated I take electrolytes I uh in, um not coracetin but quercetin with a Q turmeric, uh, ivermectin, the controversial horse dewormer. And uh, today I woke up after sleeping for 12 hours last night, I woke up feeling about about 85% and I haven't let off the schedule of, you know, vitamin C, vitamin D, all these supplements. I'm going to do another schedule of ivermectin this afternoon. And then uh, hopefully I'll be out of the woods. But um, at this point, I'm more worried about uh, you know, Rios, who is just today, is starting to get the initial symptoms of it, and uh, I think Gus is uh, Gus is uh, got he had a little bit of a fever, and he's been pretty lethargic, but he's been mostly okay. I think the one that I'm worried about the most right now is my wife. So, 
anybody who's listening, prayers up for the wife. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, being sick is um, I, I I'm not gonna lie, you know, like that that was. Uh, in recent memory, that's probably the second worst time I've ever been sick. Second but the recovery second. is phenomenal, and I think that should be inspiring mm-hmm. for for many people uh, because that is sort of one of the diagnostics of health. It, you know, you even the healthiest, most beautifully tuned athletes in the world. You know, everyone get you know is going to get sick. Uh, illness and trauma, you know, traumatic injury, they're atmospheric in the world, you know, it's not like, uh, mm-hmm. and, and we often take for granted the fact that animals don't, don't have any issues unless it's because of humans. Well, it's not really true. I saw an in-flight in collision between two birds, which is, you know, uh, not, uh, not common, fortunately, but things are going to happen to us. That's what being physical, mm. organic beings are. The question is how we handle it and how quickly we recover. Right. And I I was con- I was definitely concerned about how you were feeling, of course, because I, I know some people <coughs> uh, who, you know, they, they really kind of perversely wanted to get COVID, I hate to say. Uh, right. And they right. savored, right. you know, because it was a validation of, of a reality that they uh, embraced on multiple levels, including the metaphysical one. But I was concerned mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly with you in, in terms of the family, and because and I, I knew that would be your mm-hmm. chief concern of, of how Rios was feeling. I, th- I figured, Gus, I, I think that kids just that age are... Well, you worry, of course, but you're worried all the time anyway. You know, something could happen. Yeah, um, exactly. So right. Rio's getting sick, and then the eating crow sort of aspect. And you've handled right. both of those right. very well. And, you know, this is, the, this is the test of all of it. This is where the mythos mm-hmm. and the magic enters into our daily mm-hmm. lives, that we all are Ulysses type of figures. We may not be dealing with sirens and whirlpools and, you know, one-eyed giants. But, yeah, we are, actually, you know? We are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it really is a mental thing. I think that this can get... Uh, at this point, I think people have cooled off a little bit about the, the COVID thing. It's become so ubiquitous. I'll see on Twitter or Instagram stories, people are like, well got COVID again. Well, got COVID again. So it's a part of the fabric of our reality at this point. And I knew it was only a matter of time before I got it, but I just, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to, you know, prescribe to anybody, uh, any kind of medicinal, medicinal schedule or anything like that. But, uh, one thing that I will say, and how much this helps depends on how much you kind of rock with Chris and I's understanding of how reality works, uh, is headspace. Because I began to realize while I was like deep in the, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's one o'clock in the morning and you wake up and it feels like, you know, you've wet the bed because you're just so sweaty and you don't want to get out from under the covers because the AC is turned to 71 degrees and it's just too cold to get out. But um, I don't know how else to put it except that you just kind of do. 
and you just focus on getting through it and understanding it. One thing that I will say that when COVID was really bad for me for that 24 hour, uh, we'll say 36 hour period, uh, it feels very, it does feel somewhat synthetic. Uh, it feels like I used to do a lot of research chemical drugs developed in China to be analogs to, uh, you know, stuff like ecstasy and speed and things like that. And it, I felt very similar to some of the come downs from some of those drugs. Ooh, so, ooh, that resonates with me. Yeah, yeah a certain kind of uh, interesting, a synthetic toxicity, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Whereas, exactly. You know, yeah. whereas I would say uh, the, the fundamental reality of malaria is profoundly organic, ancient, mm-hmm. and unmistakably. <coughs> I mean, you almost feel a curious sense of uh, not relief, but there is a kind of. Um, well, in the mythology of, of people who have written about it, there's a sense of, of kind of a, a presence being with you, the presence of the past, mm. because so many millions of people have had it you know, all over the world, and in particular parts of the world. But you, you definitely do not feel anything uh, like the man-made uh, quality that you're describing in any sense whatsoever. You know, it's... It, mm-hmm. it almost mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. provides a refreshing uh, glimpse at all those things. It's like looking at uh, a scene that you're familiar with through a mesh of window screen, you know, and, uh, mm. and you, you mm-hmm. see that, mm-hmm. you know, instead of the grid of the mesh kind of getting in the way, you start to see that as a kind of organizing principle for the vision behind. but. If you if you meditate on it a little bit, the the mesh disappears, and you realize that that's mm. the man-made stuff that we've got going on, and there yeah. is an internal reality to our body. I mean, we're made of starlight, you know. Um, right. Exactly. And it, yep. we're we're not made of, of weird chemicals in laboratories, and and that you know this is what what our one of our heroes, Terence McKenna, was uh, such a, a an articulate. Uh, spokesperson for about you know the suspicions we need to healthy suspicions we need to have about things synthesized uh, and not just man-made but also new and untried and not long mm-hmm. proven you know um, yeah that's that's 100% where I am too so yeah if malaria is a banana COVID is banana pudding. yeah um, and so I do like that Terrence McKenna suspicion and that that is, you know, not to not to rehash the whole thing, but that's one of the reasons why I did not get the vaccine. You know, I just I just we just it's purely a time issue. It's purely a time issue. And we don't I feel like the my age bracket, like the success of my age bracket of overcoming COVID to the potential risks of the vaccine which i think are both small but it just it would it seems redundant to even do it you know 
seemed like willingly taking a risk. Well, I don't know. I'm just going to stop. Well, I, I think that people topic. should really, uh, I certainly understand that. And I think that, that it, uh, I mean, I have a friend who, who is living and working as he's always done, because he was born there in, in the heart of the Congo, which is, you know, the heart of Africa at the equator, the center of an enormous amount of, <coughs> of global energy. And, you know, his view is, uh, you know, he says, look at me, I've, I've got four kids. Of course I'm worried about their health. I'm not going to dismiss any potential uh, benefit from vaccines. But he said, look at the history of this area. You know, we've been experimented on with vaccines to some very dreadful effects. Uh, we have the right to be a little bit concerned about something that just got, uh, you know, manufactured uh, very recently in some, you know, foreign laboratory. Uh, we live mm-hmm. in a laboratory. That's mm-hmm. what the Congo is, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's. I think a lot of areas in Africa echoed that. Exactly, too. and they, they had, had very good reason. From, Historically, yeah. very good mm-hmm. reason. You know, they've been exposed to some of the early you know, trial things for probably much longer than we realize, but certainly for going, you know, for 70 years or more. And to not always great effect and, and very little follow-up. Yeah. And I, I think that some suspicion about that is, you know, perfectly reasonable. Meanwhile, some things that you mentioned of anti-inflammatories and staying fully hydrated are basic things that people can do. Certainly everyone in the West can do that. Anyone who can afford to have a cell phone can afford the basic nutrients every day, basic hydration, and some anti-inflammatories. And also, I hate to say this, but I, I follow this. I've, I've been really working on it myself, and I know it's hard to uh, maintain shape and tone as you get older. But if you are carrying more weight than your frame is designed to carry you're putting yourself in in a situation of discomfort uh, on multiple levels and potential health risk that that's something you can eliminate you really can you know yeah yeah and danger too because covid replicates in fat cells so it's you know or the fat cells or the mechanism i don't know not a scientist here another thing that i'm doing uh and this is where I think people have too quickly uh, dismissed some of the more quote-unquote hip or things that sound too simple. But as we record this episode, I'm luxuriating in the Oklahoma sun. I'm just getting sunlight, mm-hmm. uh, you know, instead of sitting inside the the dim box of my house, uh, which is you know chock full of little COVID particles. And right air now. conditioning. <laughs> instead of doing air. that. And air conditioning, forced air. Like, I'm just, I've been outside. Uh, you and I talked for a bit before we started recording. And I've been outside for 90% of this conversation. Kind of walking between the shade and out into the sun. Uh, I'm actually turning a bit red. I should probably relax on that a little bit. But, um, you know, being a part of a, a kind of an ecosystem and, and, you know, the sun is full of vitamin D and, and other things. Uh, and it can give you skin cancer, I guess. I don't know about that, but it can give you skin cancer, I guess. Uh, so you have to be careful. You have to. But it just came out that uh, they recalled a bunch of banana boat or something like that because it had a chemical inside of it that caused skin cancer. 
So that's when I say I'm not sure about the sun causing skin cancer, the fact that a sunblock just was revealed to cause skin cancer, we might have been looking in the wrong in the wrong place. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, we uh, might have just been, you know, people, uh, you know, with paler skin behaving stupidly in the sun, you know. I mean, a lot of serious uh, <laughs> adventures went out into, you know, hardcore tropical environments for years and didn't get skin cancer, you know, because they dressed accordingly. Right. If you're going to, you know, all these things we can manage. But I'm so glad you sound so good. I, I wouldn't... Have, uh, if you if you didn't tell me that uh, you were sick, I wouldn't know, and I think other you know listeners will feel the mm-hmm. same way. So, um, okay. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. It is uh, it's not fun, but you'll survive. Cool. All right. Well, um, you've got your words, and I'm about I ready to lay on you one. Of, I think a really really fun imaginative challenge, which will give you a chance to uh, distribute some. Uh, discomfort which is always kind of one of the you know it's a perverse human thing but as we say in the uh, uh, psychic defense manual a little bit of embracing some of our own uh, perversities uh, is is healthy it it, it, it it gets us past a neurotic fixation on them but I've got a, a band name um, the uh, Lake Mead, uh, which is beautiful and haunted, uh, is drying up next to me, and we keep finding uh, bodies from the past, and everyone freaks mm-hmm. out, you know, forgetting, well, hey man, this is the Las Vegas area, you know? <laughs> there's, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think, to be honest, there's probably a fair number of bodies waiting to be found pretty much everywhere there are people. Um, but my band name this time is I'm going for Inhuman Remains. Not human remains, but Inhuman Remains. And that's really I'm, cool. yeah, I'm imagining uh, uh, kind of on our time travel or uh, refusal to leave the past sort of theme, I'm imagining uh, a band that has militantly adopted kind of... Uh, a Brian Ferry from the 1980s look, as if they just refused to, to uh, update their calendars. They've just they're they're back in that 1980s Studio 54, uh, like a New York Village party with cocaine, and meanwhile their songs are about, of course, the real situation of New York, everything falling apart. Uh, total degeneration outside, but inside at the party, and it's a it's a theme concept album. Their first album, it's about you know staying within the party, and uh, I think that's another interesting play on, you know, because we we have all this concern about political parties, which uh, doesn't seem like a very good party to me. <laughs> you know, I remember yeah, no. you know parties were fun. Point, you bed. know. So, mm-hmm. inhuman yeah. remains, but, uh, okay, get ready for the aphorism. Uh, I'm getting seriously into my blowgunning and blowgun magic, and I think it's really strengthening my, uh, the intensity of the language. Uh, so here it is. If you're too certain about terror and humiliation, 
they will seek you out. If you are too certain about delight and beauty, they will hide. Hmm. Isn't that so true, though? I think it is. I think it is. I think if you are... The moment you, you have too clear a face of what fear and distress and frustration and humiliation, I think that's a very powerful word. I think a lot of us are more afraid of humiliation almost anything, you know, than, than physical pain. Uh, it, it's on that level, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if, if we start to, to project those images too clearly onto the world, damn it, we start to see them everywhere, you know. Every, everybody is out to get it. I mean, that's where the persecution complex is. That's, that's where the colloquial version of, of paranoia comes from. That's not really the formal uh, definition of paranoia. Uh, paranoia is really uh, formally an over-regard to self-reference. Um, and paranoia. It, it then becomes persecution because humans are, are kind of naturally suspicious and scared and you know um, if you sure, focus yeah. too much on yourself it's unlikely you're going to have good feelings about the world you know you, you that's you're out of balance already but I think the uh, the same thing is true about beauty and you know if if your idea of beauty is a kind of a hallmark card kind of thing or Discovery Channel, or if if the if the parameters, the format of beauty is too narrow and too predictable. Uh, remember to go back to our, our hero Gregory Bateson, who said that the measure of information in a, in a message is how unpredictable it is. Uh, the moment that you decide, well, this is what beauty is, whether it's a beautiful woman or a beautiful mountain scene or beauty in any form. Or and therefore delight. Uh, you've you've closed out so many possible experiences, because you know maybe it's really a squishy mess of weird stuff that looks beautiful to you. Or I mean, isn't isn't the nature of, of art, of great art, finding beauty in unexpected places? That's kind of our mission, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I like that Bateson quote about the the level of actual information being judged based on its unpredictability because that's I think it's it's difficult I think to to balance that out with a kind of um, sort of rapidly kind of always chasing novelty I think there's a balance between those two things right of finding some uh, some nice pe- like, like just enjoying a nice uh, you know sunset which we've all seen a million times uh, versus uh, maybe constantly seeking out something new. Is that what they're saying? Am I off base with this? No, you're not. I, I think we could call listeners' attention uh, back to Terence McKenna, who had a very special uh, treatment and usage of the term novelty, which uh, it, it's too it's too important in his overall thinking and body of work to summarize here. But I'd encourage people to look back at that because. That was something very important. And if you drew a line between Bateson's notion of predictability or unpredictability and McKenna's idea of novelty, 
uh, and it's perfectly fair to, to do so. They were contemporaries. They, they spent time together uh, in Santa Cruz and Central California on the coast. They did you know, workshops together. They were very, very aware of each other's work and thinking and drew on the same uh, enormous uh, ancient lake of bizarre and interesting ideas. Um, so between those two uh, thinkers, the notions of, of uh, unpredictability and novelty really deserve uh, a, a close uh, investigation because uh, they come up in, in ways that, 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 that are more than we can summarize here. But you're not off base at all. And it's, uh, it, 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 what's interesting, what could be added, and I think kind of fits with um, your ethos, is there's a kind of responsibility that they call us to uh, to engage and savor unpredictability and novelty and to also be uh, well sort of engines of those you know engines ourselves to not uh, you know the world isn't just there you know to entertain us or to make us sick uh, we're, we're also part of the world and, and the tools of unpredictability and novelty are tools for our psychic beings to break out of, of our shells and to be more engaged with the world and see that we too are part of it. You know, we're, we're made of starlight. And, uh, right, you know. Right. So a, a, a curious appreciation for novelty anchored by a robust discipline for ritual and routine beautiful beautiful i think that that's you do that so well that that's really lovely i think that's uh that's couldn't be said better i think they would they would both uh you know applaud that and and say look yeah that's that's what it's about i'm picturing them applauding me from heaven thanks guys appreciate that (laughs) so that's really good um what is my imaginative challenge for today we'll see if i can do two tracks of my brain the the fog as i said has completely cleared but if i had to describe my feeling i would say that i feel as though i had a few too many beers last night so i have kind of a hangover going on okay covid hangover well i I, we'll see we'll see i I think this might sit perfectly with that if anything (laughs) can because it's uh, it's tailored to you, and I think it's an interesting idea. Just it uh, it occurred to me out while sitting out looking at Red Mountain, and uh, I thought uh, David's first novel, uh, which really intrigued me so much, because it seemed so unpredictable for a, a young, sort of uh, edgy punk Oklahoman. Uh, with you know weird ideas to be writing about uh, a Russian gulag, uh, you know Siberian uh, prison camp sort of thing. So I liked the idea of a gulag. So this is part of that. You're you're a gulag uh, overseer or a soul master, okay. The technology, the magic technology exists to capture and extract the psyches or souls of people, depending on your choice. The Greeks had two minds about that. They saw them as the same and they saw them as different. 
but you can extract the psyche or soul of someone that you deem to be uh, particularly offensive, perhaps not a moral criminal, but uh, someone who is deserving of punishment, and you don't need to explain that. Uh, and you can, for a certain time, sentence them to be placed into the gulag of someone else's body and mind. And I, I will give you an example. I hope people don't uh, draw too many conclusions from this. I'm trying to uh, use a big canvas example uh, purely for the purposes of explanation. But supposing that you felt that Rachel Maddow was particularly annoying, offensive, and deserving of this kind of uh, rehabilitative uh, treatment, let's call it, rather than punishment, Uh, you might, for instance, Mm -hmm. sentence Mm -hmm. her to a certain period of time to inhabit the gulag of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so yeah. we're on that yeah. level. So right. Right. what right. we right. want to hear, yes. Yes. We're, we're interested in a couple of things. In your COVID hangover state, we're interested in, in who your target or targets for punishment are, uh, who the, you know, the vessels that you're going to incarcerate them within for a time, and any upshot that, that may happen, uh, you know, as a result of this. So... Any questions? This is no. This is part. This is actually a perfect uh, imaginative challenge for this state right now because it's uh, it's kind of the way that my mind works anyway. I immediately five or six ideas came to my. So I'll keep thinking about it. I want to hone it down to Rachel Maddow to Trump, uh, for example. The the uh, actually I'll save it. I'll save that. I'll, I won't jump the gun, but yes. Okay, good. okay. Excellent. I think, th- and I think the Soul Master is a new sort of good nickname handle for you. I think you, you, I think you could be trusted with that, you know, that power and that title without causing total havoc. You know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I would, I would accept it reluctantly, but I wouldn't really be reluctant. <laughs> On the inside, I'd be a little bit. Yeah. Out, 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 outwardly, I would say I. T- there's no way I could res- accept this responsibility. <laughs> Meanwhile, in my head, I'm like, "Yeah, yes, baby, yes, yeah. let's go." See, I, you're you're a you're a deeply <laughs> honest man, and I think that's important. So that's why you 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 know to to those who are deserving of power, perhaps power should be given. So there you go, there yeah. you go. Well, we look forward right. to that. Um, I'm in. I'm into it. So. Uh, what would you like to you'll have to forget I can't remember where we left off last okay time. okay um, well we had a, a, a I think a really good uh, practical down-to-earth takeoff point uh, here which intersects with issues that we've been talking about in terms of, of history the the physical and metaphysical nature of history to what extent it is human made you know, as in a laboratory, and uh, and can we control it? Uh, can we put the uh, the genie back in the bottle? To what extent is is history inherent somehow? And it's a question of, of then our perspectives on it, uh, but also the uh, 
the issues that we really started with in terms of young people, initiation rights, microgenerational differences, and I put forward the question last time, will there, and I'm going to amend that to, can there be icons and heritage in the near future? And let's think in terms of perhaps uh, 20 years, what used to be defined as a generation. That seems now, I think, a long way in the, in the future. Uh, I went back. Yeah, it's like two, two weeks. Yeah, I, I went back and looked at some of our, uh, you know, noted futurists, uh, their twenty-year uh, predictions, you know, from the from say the the, the turn of the century, and uh, I think twenty years is a very long way to see. Now um, we've got so many problems that we're facing. I, I think the longer view would be uh, very very tricky. Um, but then I added to that question, so can there be icons and heritage? And I think people know what, mm-hmm. what I mean there, but mm-hmm. we can un- unpack that. But going back to sort of the family level and, um, you know, a 14 or 15 month, you know, you're all toddler and looking forward to the future. I've asked the question, can there be icing, cake, and occasions? Uh, I think it's important that, and one of the things that I've heard from people that we do well and, and we, we intentionally try to, is to balance the very big canvas, broad spectrum notions of culture with uh, individual situations, the individual psychologies and psyches, and the family roof line, you know? Um, our friend Diane Karajanakis is always talking about how things affect us at, you know, what can we do in our own driveways, in our own garbage cans, in our own kitchens, you know? Um, so those two questions, can there be icons and heritage in the future? Um, we're having, you know, tremendous problems with our school systems. Uh, in, education in America is in total decline. The family unit is in crisis and has been for perhaps half a century now. Um, We have boomers uh, and Gen X people who are going to uh, depart this existence. We're going to lose some major Mm -hmm. figures. I was thinking of, of, uh, you know, Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger and all those people are, you know, um, we, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, you know, we have a a big hit movie with with Elvis uh, as, you know, about Elvis Presley. Uh, will people um, really get with that in, in 20 years' time? I mean, I, I have, we've talked about some major TV stars like Michael Landon, you know, and the fact that my uh, Gen Z students have no idea. They have no idea what's going on. Um, we're fragmenting into uh, a goldfish set of goldfish bowls that have no intersections, no connections, no uh, tubes that are linking them. Uh, So that's my question to start with. And I I think this is another good uh, point where our age differences give us, I think, some strengths to to draw on in terms of looking at things differently. Um, So let me throw that to you in, in in the COVID hangover mode. Can there be icons and heritage in in the future at you know what will Gus's 21st birthday look like let's 
let's cover all those bases. Yes. Tentatively, yes. I think that this depends, first of all, I like the concept conceptually, and I want to talk about it conceptually because I think that's more where you're coming from, but I did want to take a quick detour into the perhaps material reality of the next 20 or 30 years. A lot of stuff depends on whether we have the internet in 20 or 30 years or what you know what the world actually looks like once this economic downturn really gets going if perhaps some wars escalate so getting all of that out of the way we're talking more in like a trending lack of um of heritage and icons with with kids these days with my generation getting worse into the zoomers I have that right, right? You do that's, have that's, that that's right. right. Um, I, I would like to just, um, I like your point, though, about what I would, you, you've called them practical <coughs> issues. I, I would refer to them as, as structural issues in terms of, mm-hmm. I mean, we've just come out of a pandemic. You're, you're, you're now involved in that uh, in a different way than you were. Yep. Uh, we have uh, issues with, with China and Russia We've got these broad sort of ranging issues that have all have been with us for you know really all of modernity has been about world war or the threat of it. So all of these things are very very legitimate sort of questions, and I love the idea of will the internet be with us? I wish more of our futurist visionary thinkers uh, were a little bit more able to embrace that. The fact is, too many of them are on the payroll of something related to the internet mm. to be able to step back and and argue about that. I think what that would be interesting to follow up on in a, in a separate issue uh, episode itself of looking at what structural issues would need to to happen for that kind of a total upset. Um, and right. I, I think right. that would be really um, not to quarantine that off on its own, but I, I think that is such an important issue. It's a big issue. subject, though. Um, yeah. But you're correct that I was thinking of it much more in terms of ongoing uh, philosophical, cultural degradation trends. Uh, you know? Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it comes from, uh, I, I believe, well, this is all, it's all a function of the internet, as far as I can see, because um, I believe it was. P.T. Barnum, who coined the 15 minutes of fame in the future. Everybody That's Warhol. 15 minutes of fame. Was it but Warhol? But who is a direct, okay. yeah. a direct yeah. mutant descendant of, of P.T. Barnum. Absolutely. Right, <laughs> right, right. And so I think that what has happened, one of the major reasons why we don't have the icons or the sense of heritage that we used to, all goes back to this idea of the constant atomization and fragmentation of individuals into independent capitalist units that are both thing like things and I use that word very specifically things to be sold to and things that can sell themselves so they become this semi hermetically sealed generative uh, feedback loop, right? That that is completely ahistorical and 
has no interest in a past or a future because it's it's constantly creating uh, you know its own timeline over and over and over again. So I think that if if people and I do think this will happen because I think that you and I are on the cusp of this idea. I think all the listeners to this show are on exactly the same tip as us on this, whether they agree with us on everything or not. I think this is pretty universal for the no country listenership. We all agree that that we are that we're tired of not having heritage or icons. But, you know, a Paul McCartney came along in a time in the 1960s when the music industry was was, you know, it was monolithic because there was no internet. It was whoever they chose to show to you. I mean, I love the Beatles and I love the Rolling Stones, but if it had been more like 2022, uh, and you know you can find your analogous bands for that, whatever. But would they have achieved that level of pop superstardom? We can't really say, right? I think so because I think that, for example, the White Album is a classic. I could listen to that any time of the day and, and have a good time. But I think that I don't. I don't know. I think very specifically about uh, this conversation that I had recently with my friend Jordan Harper. Uh, who writes for for television, and he he'll tell me about his woes with the, you know, the Hollywood industry, right? And the icon, the Hollywood icons, uh, are all getting older, but there's there's literally no replacement crop, if you will, for these icons. Um, so you'll still have sort of the same superstars from the 90s when I was a kid watching movies are the same actors showing up today. And uh, he was giving me an example. He was telling me about a friend of his who is a Mexican-American screenwriter who had gotten really far in his, um, in the, like, the negotiation phases and they were all ready to go. And uh, when they got down to brass tacks and they started budgeting out the television show, they realized that there are no major male leads of Hispanic descent. Not one that would be big enough to sell this show. So that again speaks to this atomization. We have this idea that, you know, that diversity is this big thing, but there's just, but, but nobody's rising to the top because that mechanism for creating icons or creating a through line of film history I think has been lost by countless TikTok videos, Twitter or tweets, Instagram posts. There's, there's that psychic energy that creates icons and heritage has been exploded across the entire world. I couldn't agree more, and I think that there are many interesting things to uh, to say in this regard. Uh, Jim Morrison, who kind of couldn't be more of an iconic figure of his moment, who is still selling records, you know, a half a century later, said we were in those days uh, exposed to enormous visitations of energy. And uh, he went on to say, you know, that 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 wouldn't happen again. And I I think we continually find, and Hollywood continually finds, that uh, charisma cannot be laboratory created. Um, 
I'll, I'll give you right, a great right. local story. With, with Lake Mead uh, receding, I'm involved in this underwater archaeology uh, dive group. Um, they're really fun. There's a great guy who's a part of the archaeology department at uh, UNLV, one of the few departments I have respect for. And the dive master is, is uh, a lovely gal who was made to uh, be wearing a wetsuit. I mean, she is just a beautiful amphibious goddess of, of wonder. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're fun people to hang out with. But uh, there's lots of cool stuff to die for. Old lost Mormon settlements, dinosaur bones, etc. But one of the interesting um, grail, uh, I think it is kind of the holy grail for, for some of us anyway. Steve McQueen lost uh, an expensive pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses while power boating on Lake Mead one day. And the, the dream of, of recovering those is something that uh, the dive group, you know, that we, we talk about, you know, the magic of recovering Steve McQueen's dark glasses. Now, can you really get that excited about finding Brad Pitt's sunglasses, you know? I, I don't think so. Well, no. No, I, and I, it was funny, I was going to bring up Brad Pitt because there's a film coming out recently called Bullet Train, and it's based on a novel by uh, an author named, uh, his last name is Isaka. I can't remember his first name. But he had an interview in the New York Times recently where they addressed some of the controversy about having a film that is based in a kind of uh, Neo-Tokyo uh, that has Japanese characters in it, but the, whose main character happens to be Brad Pitt, who is, of course, white. And the Japanese author said, uh, but when they brought that to me, I said, of course I want Brad Pitt to be the lead role for this. He's, he's, he's one of the last stars that we have, you know? And he's, like, and he's like, and I want the movie to be seen. So it's interesting that you bring up Brad Pitt. I don't think, however, even though I would argue that Brad Pitt is one of the biggest stars that we have right now, yeah, there's no let you you don't want a piece of him in the way that, you know, maybe something even more recent than Steve McQueen, maybe Prince, right? Like if you went to to tour uh if you went to Minneapolis and you saw, you know, one of Prince's guitars or something, that would it would feel like a fetish. Yes, yes, like I'd sacred, agree with that. A sacred I'd item. agree with that. And I think that what you're saying is is you're 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 positing uh, without having any ability to, to quantifiably measure this uh, in any kind of exact scientific way, of course, some sort of spectrum <coughs> of, of charismatic power uh, that is... is Orgone energy. Yeah, it's very mysterious. There's, there are many factors that converge on it. It, 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 they, it. it speaks to characters, figures, celebrities emerging at certain moments in time. It certainly speaks to their, their, their talent, their, their abilities, but the, the legendary quality that grew up around them uh, cannot be replicated, you know? Yes, yes. And I think, you know, honestly, I feel like we, we nailed it there. I do. So to pivot to where you could potentially, how could you bring something like that back? 
I think it would have to go back to the structural element. You know, you, in order to have that much energy, you have to have focus from a large number of people. You have it, part of it isn't just an inward orgone energy uh, expenditure from the icon themselves. It's also the attention that's placed on them by a mass amount of people. But well, to re to do a little rebuttal to my own point, I mean, numbers-wise, we do have artists that are as big now, for example, have as much attention on them now as the Beatles did in the 1960s. Technically, in terms of record sales and concert sales, uh, but there are people like, um, I don't know, Ariana Grande or Drake. Taylor or, Swift. And or, I love cutting. Yeah. Taylor, Taylor Swift, and it's just, you know, Beyonce. when you look at Taylor Swift, yeah, all these people, I just, I look at them and it's just, it's a big... It's a big nothing. It's a big nothing to you know. Or uh, another big one who I literally, I'm not even. I'm not trying to sound cool or uh, hip or out of it, but I had no idea who Harry Styles was. He's a British <clears throat> pop musician from, I guess, a, a band, a boy band. Uh, but Rios had a playlist going. It was uh, generated by Spotify. And this song was on, and I was like, this is uniquely annoying. What is this? Um, and this guy is massive. Massive. So, um, I don't know. I'd also, I would have to be uh, a, a magician who was able to get inside the mind of the, of the, the youth of today. But, because some, some kids, especially with some K-pop groups... They, they do feel the way that you're talking about some of these groups. Do you think that it could be a function of our ages that we don't feel this anymore? Well, I think that is always an important question to, to keep asking oneself. Uh, I think that is a way of staying genuinely young in mind or at least flexible, what we assume uh, youth to be. Flexibility, agility, uh, laterality uh, it's worth asking that question I, I don't I don't think it's the case because I think that there are, are many other ways to scrutinize this issue um, beyond popular entertainment I think that it's interesting that popular entertainment mm -hmm. becomes mm -hmm. so much the focal point uh, for for uh, measuring the, the, the nature of culture in the same way that I think technology is overvalued and given too much uh, credence. Um, I, I would look at some other things and I would ask questions of, you know, you drive into uh, not just small towns, but, but you know, n any size town. You see signs for Rotary Club, Lions, uh, the, the churches that are in town, the, the Chamber of Commerce. Will those organizations uh, be, will, will they survive? Uh, Boulder City, where I live, has some really great collectible stores. Some of them are you know, proper antique stores, but more of them are sort of pop culture, ephemeral, <coughs> collectible sort of things. Uh, I'm uh, pitching an article to uh, one of the, the surviving, you know, leading 
cultural magazines about interviewing some of these owners about what they see in terms of people walking in. You know, real forensic evidence of uh, millennials and Gen Z being interested in these things, you know? Um, whether they're, I mean, and think about a, a collectible store has a very flexible framework because it doesn't have to just have pictures of Elvis or Frank Sinatra or, you know, it doesn't, it's not tied into a particular vintage. Um, it can, you know, it's got Star Wars stuff and it will have Harry Potter stuff and it will have, you know, whatever the new, you know, the new thing is. Uh, will that idea continue? And, and there's interesting arguments that yes, it will. That the collectible thing um, will con will continue. It just will be new uh, little you know icons in in a toy sense. Uh, but I'm not sure about these service clubs. Uh, I I don't know if those. I don't know what the future of the Masons is like. If whether or not they're recruiting new people. Uh, we know that philanthropy is generally speaking very very down. Uh, I mean, it looks terrible relative to the 19th century, even on parts of, you know, people like Bill Gates. Uh, what about things like art galleries and symphonies and the ballet and the opera? You know, these mm -hmm. giant institutional mm -hmm. art forms that uh, someone like my mother would, would, would have said, well, they'll always be there. Well, I, I know some people right. who are working in fundraising. Um, Actually, I know a chick that Rios would be really good mates with. There, uh, I think she'd really, you know, really dig this friend of mine. Uh, she's a gun fundraiser. I mean, she is mm. just. Mm -hmm. She was born to do it. She's just a wizard at it, and uh, she's works for you know one of the most prestigious art brands in the world, and you would think that that was as institutionally safe as anything could possibly be. And she says it is hard, hard work. And it's looking very dark for uh, when you dip you know, under 40. And that's where some new money, the new tech money is oftentimes, but no, they're not, they're not gonna uh, pony up. Um, research institutions, zoos, you know, there are all these things that have been uh, major, major institutions for two and three centuries, and their, their future is in doubt, you know, um, yeah. and it, it really, I, I think it, 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 it's what you can count on as being uh, an assumed and, well, unquestioned part of civic and civil uh, landscape culture. I don't know if I'd be game to make too many predictions on that front. I really don't. Um, so it's much more than just, I, I, I understand exactly where, where you started with, with pop music, because I do too, and I think a lot of us begin that way. Or movie stars, you know, like Brad Pitt. I think that is all part of the thing. But this larger phenomenon of a collapse of iconography, an exhaustion of yeah. mythology, uh, and this is one of the, the issues for people um, who have been following us the whole time. We do explore in the Psychic Defense Manual an extension of, of the Jungian idea of the collective unconscious where that could be <coughs> exhausted. 
you know um, yeah. and many cultures yeah. have have said you know and the indigenous perspective is sometimes we need a world renewal ceremony you know they mean that for their particular mm. culture but they accept mm -hmm. that, that sometimes uh, it's not just about moving on to new hunting ground or turning over some new earth if, if they're you know agricultural it's much deeper they need to have some sort of powerful reinvention, or in Jim Morrison's term, a new visitation of energy. And I think that uh, my hope lies in uh, Gus's generation group. I think that yeah, I think too. that's yeah. where the action is. I I am distressed by uh, many millennials. Um, but the people your age that distress me have pretty much already made a decision not to have children or are already doing so in very, very conventional terms that I don't yeah. think are part of any kind it's of healing ritual at all. Not in my view. It's a bad choice. It's a bad choice. It's going to look real bad in about 20 years. Well, I, um, absolutely. And I, I can tell you the people who, who didn't take parenting seriously enough with, uh, you know, kids are now 18, 19, 20, 21, and we, we, we might have called those people adults at one point, but I, I just don't think that term is deserved. I really don't. I'm very worried. I have, I have about five things to say, and I'm going to not get them jumbled up. First thing, I found out recently that there is a category of book genre called New Adult. This was coined by no. HarperCollins in 2009. No, no, no. Listen, listen to this. Listen to this. No. It is for, it is for the 18 to 30 age bracket. That's. So I'll let that sit with you for just a moment. But I can't sit, Dave. That's more information than my groin, let alone my mind, can deal with. <laughs> I've got an intestinal yeah. knot now, and I've, I've had very good digestion up to this <coughs> moment, because my instant thought was some copywriting kind of mindset came up with new adult, because young adult was already taken, and oh, I just, mm -hmm. oh, that is... N-N-A. In not it does not apply or <laughs> not applicable or nar not applicable narcotics anonymous not applicable or new adult oh my it's god it's really beautiful that is a heavy it. heavy thing to lay on me out of the blue oh uh, okay well that was just you you said you had five that was a pretty uh major shot across the bow there what, what else yeah, you got i figured i'd 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 open up strong. Well, thinking about these art institutions and you know other civic institutions being dismantled, even though to somebody like your mother that would have seemed impossible uh, only a few decades ago perhaps, that's all downstream from one of my major issues. So the other thing is when a lot of these icons or this heritage demands a sort of devotion or an attention to a particular thing. It doesn't even necessarily, because we're talking about broad spectrum cultural institutions, but it doesn't have to do that. If you're 
you know, a, a devotee of, you know, Baha'i, which is, if I'm getting this correct, it's a, you know, it's a subsect of Islam. I had a friend who was Baha'i, and they're, you know, they're vegans, they practice uh, the fasting for Ramadan, but, you know, it's more of an esoteric sect. But they took it very seriously. They were completely normal people, but also very religious because they, they had they had this devotion to this idea. So it makes you start to wonder, okay, well, how do you get the devotion to something if everybody has turned themselves into their own little TikTok star or pop star? You can't. Because all of that energy that's supposed to go into a feeling of admiration or devotion, uh, religious devotion, whatever you want to call it, is turned inward to the self in, in, the, in the urge for uh, fame or you know, monetization of the self or whatever. So it would require, the, and so this is yet again, jumping again, so to talk about the cleansing ritual that would be necessary I think that it could be psychedelic in nature although psychedelics it really depends on how say the spirit of ayahuasca or some other psychedelic wants to interact with you I know people who don't get anything out of ayahuasca I had a my boss back when I worked for the education company was a real slime ball he was completely concerned with money and he died at work. He overworked himself, had a heart attack, and just fell down on the table. They were able to revive him, but he was dead for about as long as you can be dead and come back from it. So I was really fascinated by this, and I asked him at one point, we were driving in the car to uh, Dallas for a convention, and I said, so what did you see? And he said, oh, I didn't see anything. He said, but when I woke up in the hospital a few weeks later, I knew I had to make more money. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe everybody doesn't get the white light or the, you know, the deep spiritual feeling, meeting your family. Uh, maybe people have a kind of block that doesn't allow them to do that. So, but anyway, that was a tangent. My point, though, whether it's psychedelic or not, the cleansing ritual has to be one of complete uh, self, it's almost self-annihilation. Right, and I don't know what form that takes exactly, but if the self has become a mechanism to sell itself, then the self needs to be destroyed. Oh, I like that. I like that. You know, and and that leaves that leaves an opening for things like icons and heritage and devotion. You open yourself up to time. I think that's a really uh, that um, ties in with some uh, many things that I've been thinking about lately. I found myself writing, "Could it be that we are strangers to time?" Capital T, you know. And 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 mm -hmm. if that's true, how odd because we are in part inventors <coughs> of it. But, but I mean, how much more knowledge of time could the, you know really? But but it's possible we're total strangers to time. Uh, another thing I, I wrote down just last night. The greater the emphasis on me and self, the smaller people have become, which is um, mm -hmm. a very... Uh, and I, I had a, a moment of um, 
this is before I found out that you were sick. I, I, I had a moment of, of um, a friend sent me a, a video from Ghana, and I, I would post it, but it needs heavy editing. It's very, very rough and raw. But the, uh, the deal is it's in a small village, and it's, it's just a spontaneous sing-along, you know, dance out. You know, everyone's just having kind of a, a Friday night, you know, night freak out. Uh, there's no yeah. cultural, religious, traditional, it's not a festival in any sort of planned sense. It has no larger meaning other than just people in the community uh, grooving together. And I looked at it and I thought, well, the only thing I can possibly sort of think of uh, in America that's even vaguely like that is perhaps uh, New Orleans in, in the good days. I, I don't know if that still happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and even New Orleans, you know, the tradition needs things like Mardi Gras or a funeral or, you know, there weren't this was total participation and this was the question I had for you you know you look around this very uh, rough video because you know he's, he's dancing and drumming and is he part of it uh, he wasn't concentrating on really trying to make a you know a documentary film uh, and I thought wow everybody is participating here and it seems really good and I wonder do I think that because I'm thinking of it from a Western culture point of view I'm outside looking in you know, whereas everybody here is taking selfies and they're on TikTok and they're constantly posting on Instagram and everywhere else, Snapchat. And, you know, there's there's a lot of creative participation. Why doesn't it seem the same? Why doesn't it seem as good to me? Is it because I'm an old fuddy daddy now, or am I seeing something that really is different? Uh, and I think that's kind of connected with with what you've just been saying, what we've been talking yeah. about. How do you feel about right. that? I mean, right. what, without seeing my friend's video, you can imagine what's going on. The, the important yeah. Yeah. point is that there are no spectators. There's no hired band. There's no professional amateur barriers. There's none of that packaging. It's a group performance for all of the performers. It's a jam. It's a community village jam. Right, because without assuming too much about the psychology of these people, the same as you, you would have to assume that they have a different mindset from Americans because Americans, whether it's the society that we grew up in, whether it's the ubiquity of things like TikTok, we, we can't get away from monetizing things. There's a difference between documenting something and pitching and it feels like when you let's say that there was a spontaneous dance party that happened and a spect in new orleans and a spectator goes by and they are making a TikTok of it and it's got cute little quips that feels like a pitch to subscribe to their channel this guy seemed to be documenting something Documentation is very important. We've talked a lot about the necessity of journaling and keeping records of things. That's a very human impulse, and technology at its best is a fantastic tool for documentation and sharing. <coughs> but there's an ineffable quality to the it's kind of the inverse of what this guy sent you that feels more like... Uh, I don't know. 
Like they want something out of you. I think that is a terrific place uh, to uh, a trailhead to mark for our next episode because it links to uh, our episode recently of On the Record and the notion of history as record. And a, a fossil record is, is, of course, a broader, you know, giant version of that, and a kind of natural history. It, isn't that interesting? We kind of forget what, where the term natural history comes from. Very, very important to, mm -hmm. to check in with that idea that, that history is not just man-made. You know, I mean, I look behind me at these mountains, red and black mountain, and believe me, they, they're, they're histories. They're, they're right there. If you knew what to look for, really, you'd see a great deal in them, just like a history book, you know? They, they couldn't be more mm -hmm. uh, open. They're open books that way for, for, the, for someone who knows what to look for. But the difference between uh, a record and monetizing, I think that is the crucial point, and I think that links to uh, your, our earlier sort of, uh, the division between what you called very practical uh, and I called structural change in terms of whether or not the internet will exist, whether or not, you know, World War III mm -hmm. will really start, from, you know, all those sorts of things. There is a very, very peculiar line between the record, the record of a culture, and the monetizing of things, and how those two, uh, they run in, in, in parallel. They t you know, and that ties back into our earlier uh, discussions about the ghostliness of modernity in, in, in the West, the doubleness, the haunted doubleness, and our doppelganger things. We've got this alternative reality of the internet. You know, the internet is a giant memory system, it's a giant record, but it's about, well, who can monetize it, you know? And that becomes a very peculiar, secondary, almost tertiary world. You know, and now we're getting you know the metaverse. I mean, Jesus, if we need that, um, some really fruitful things to uh, to discuss there. Another thing that triggered uh, when we were talking your response to you know whether or not these uh, these art institutions, whether they be libraries or museums or galleries or the symphony, or how those will survive, uh, and and. The question of, of identity and, and, and how people connect with that, and identity being kind of the, the key paranoia uh, obsession of our time, it struck me that uh, what we don't have and what is dissolving and, and what is a mechanism for some of the, the, the degradation of, of iconography and heritage is, is class identity class identity. I think like someone like my mother, for instance, identifies with a Shakespeare festival, uh, a major library, or uh, a major metropolitan symphony, uh, in part through a kind of class identification. And when that sort of dissolves, and there's great pressure on individuals to dissolve that today, we're quite happy with gender and race distinctions. We're much less able to talk about class distinctions and, and, and completely unable in America to talk about class outside of money. That's all it means to people anymore, and it didn't. That's certainly not right. what it meant to my right. mother's generation <clears throat> at all. Um, that would be maybe a secondary or tertiary characteristic of class, perhaps, but almost not a causal factor, but more 
uh, an ancillary sort of uh, extension or implication of class. Um, and that was true in the 19th century, absolutely. I mean, you had some people who, who were considered to be you know, important class figures of, of culture who were not necessarily you know, uh, aristocratic, uh, moneyed people. Um, but now all we think of in terms of class is about tax reform and uh, who's, got, who's got money. If we talk about it at all, we're really not able to talk about it. Um, but I like this idea perhaps of, of extending our discussions about the nature of the record. Because I think we got really onto something in that episode with your notion of, of the monetizing of that. Because that is a very, very peculiar, uh, extremely modern uh, emergence, you know. Um, in the sense of, of and not that people haven't been concerned about money and power in the past, because of course they have. Absolutely they have. Um, I mean, patronage of the arts was always about, you know, the wealthy and, and the church and on and on. We know all that. But monetization is, is, a, is a peculiar new uh, way to, to phrase it. And I, I think it has a peculiar energy to it. Do you agree with that? That there's, that, yeah, of course people have been worried about, you know, feeding themselves and, and having beautiful things and all that. We know that the idea of that is not new. But the term reflects a new uh, angle of vision and obsession. That's my argument. Yep, I agree 100%. It is a weird word that reflects a weird new cultural trend. Okay. Because, I mean, you can... I mean, I've never heard... I mean, maybe they say this now, but you didn't used to hear farmers say, you know, I'm going to monetize these crops. Right. That's what I mean. That's a very good down-to-earth, pardon the pun, down-to-earth example of what I mean. That, that you absolutely, you know, nothing could be uh, older in, in organized human history than trying to, to realize, uh, you know, something from, from your crops. I mean, that's, you know, absolutely. Yeah. But, but the, the term monetizing... Uh, it implies well it makes me think of the Harvard Business School for starters you know uh, mm. and a whole new approach to as if that is the only goal you know uh, that's yeah. one part of it yeah. um, well I, I really like that as a, as a way of, of looking um, to next episode because I think that one of the challenges we set out is to try to make what some people might call metaphysics a little bit more concrete and I think that there's nothing more concrete in a sense although it's terribly abstract too than money and I think if we yeah. looked at money and culture and what this monetization framework means and maybe if we just uh, I like the idea of maybe even just trying to focus on uh, monetizing in the internet sense because the internet is kind of the, the central metaphor for the record now um, maybe that's a good starting point for, uh, for our next episode excellent yeah no I'm down for that that sounds good we'll start in on monetization um, so for the imaginative challenge I have uh, one, two, Take us to the gulag. Six. Take us to the, to the gulag. Who's going to suffer? 
Who, well, okay, so the first one that I was going to say at the top of the show, uh, just before you said the Maddow-Trump thing, but I kept it, would be putting Tucker Carlson in the body of an 18-year-old black man in a low socioeconomic neighborhood in Atlanta. Ooh, okay. Letting him live in that for a while. So that's that's a, along those lines. Okay, right? I like it. Um, so if we have somebody, for example, who is always calling people Nazis, you're a Nazi, you're a fascist, you're this, you're that, right? We're going to induce a little bit of time travel here. I'm the soul master. I have magical powers. So we're sending them into the body of a, of a young man in Germany in 19, oh, it's between 36 and 38. Just gonna see how they exist in that cultural milieu with you know the kind of thoughts that they have today. And the base reading of that is to see like, well, would you become a Nazi? Would you actually would you do that if you had enough societal pressure pointing you towards that? Uh, with a secondary interest of, of showing these people what actual Nazism looks like so maybe they would stop using that damn word so much because it gets on my nerves the next person who came to mind is named sean king oh, yeah. he, are you familiar with sean yes king? i am <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who don't know who sean king is he is a white guy who has basically pulled a rachel dolezal talcum x has per- talcum x correct he pretends to be black and is a noted scammer who you know, we'll do these GoFundMe's for the families of police shootings, shooting victims, uh, and then he basically pockets the money. He'll say, hey, I have this new hoodie coming out, and then the hoodie never comes out, and he keeps all the money, that kind of thing. So I would like to put him in the body of a single black mother in a similarly low socioeconomic place, just because that those are the people who he's made his money off of. I wouldn't call it a fortune. I don't think he's... I'm not even sure if he's a millionaire, but he's definitely made several hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars. He spent $40,000 um, on a pit bull. Yeah. What, yeah, he did? then gave the dog back. Oh, I didn't... Idiot. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, so, okay, so he's he may, he may have made that kind of money. I want to take people who are extremely online just like way too concerned with the daily ephemera of Twitter or Instagram and I want to put them into the bodies of Maui tribes people in Brazil on the evening of the bullet ant ritual so they're all getting the bullet ants I feel like people who the bullet ant ritual we've talked about this in past episodes but the bullet ant ritual is very specifically for men of this tribe because women go through childbirth that's how they experience true pain and the belief is that you have to go through real pain real hardship to induce a kind of maturity that allows you to become an adult and so i'd like to send them all to the bullet ant gulag that's actually a cool title it for is the bullet it's ant beautiful gulag. um this one's more general but I really would start to look at the Zoomers who say, OK, Boomer. If you've ever said, OK, Boomer online, you get to be a, a Boomer. 
in you know just in, in in their lives and this one might not be the hell of, of a gulag it might be good it might be bad but I, I I like this soul master idea one from uh, there is some punishment in here don't get me wrong but I like it from uh, just being able to understand people right so you have to live the life of a boomer for a while the real hell I think would come from its reverse putting a boomer into the mind of a zoomer right it's 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 literally called zoom i mean it's moving quicker it's concerned with shit that doesn't really matter uh that would be the real hellish gulag so maybe we could do a little swapsies on that and finally one of these people who drones on and on and on about climate change climate change this climate change that climate change i believe is a real phenomenon and I think that it, it is something that we should pay attention to, particularly if we care about the world that our, you know, our kids are going to live in. Although I'm not sure what's real and what's not, because it's too big of a rabbit hole. I only know what the consensus is, and unfortunately, to my detriment, the consensus is never good enough for me. But one of these online environmental activists... I would want them to live in the body of somebody who really puts their money where their mouth is, doesn't have running water, uh, doesn't, like, has to grow all of their own food, has to survive harsh winters in the wilderness with no electricity. I would just want them to really grasp what it is that they're suggesting. Because too often I think that the uh, the prescriptions for what people are supposed to do is intended to be followed by everybody except for the person prescribing it. So I'm gonna live my way. One of these uh, you know celebrities who's taking three minute flights that says you know hey we should really be concerned about climate change. I would like to see them live as though they believed climate change to be a real thing. So that's my six, and I'll think more about it, because I really like this challenge, but those were the six that I was able to come up with. This time. Okay, well look, I think that's a superb effort under any circumstances, but with a COVID hangover, uh, I think it's terrific. I, I floated that uh, with you because I think it's, uh, it's a potential for uh, a separate kind of, of book that we could look at. Um, we early in the series uh, examined the, the, the topic of empathy, which is obviously very important to this imaginative challenge. And uh, it, was, it was one of the, the series that we got some real feedback of, of a kind of, well, we got not just feedback, but pushback from people who were um, really yeah. kind of... Um, there was there was some real uh, difficulty in swallowing what what our pers- you know what our uh, perspective was and uh, we we addressed that a little bit in the psychic defense volume but it occurs to me we need to do more with it because I think what uh, this challenge and your response beautifully demonstrates is that there is a profound and inescapable relationship between empathy and imagination 
And it, empathy is, in fact, a very focused form of imaginative projection <coughs> and connection. And I think a very strong case can be made that people, generally speaking, are deficient in imagination and that therefore uh, they are deficient in genuine empathy. And I think that would be the starting point for a short book, a short evaluation of the, uh, the superficial notions of empathy that are put forward in our society today, almost as a kind of social religion or part of the woke social re religion, and why those are simply uh, not, uh, not legitimate. <laughs> They're just simply not deliverable yeah, in right. real life. And, and it's right. very demonstrable. Right. And we're therefore, we're creating an, a natural uh, schism, a, a, a fault line that we don't need to have. Because in fact, it's just, it's not achievable. We're, we're asking, and, and in some cases, expecting people to publicly virtue signal a kind of empathy when we know we're almost certain that there is a deficiency of imagination to deliver on that empathetic promise. And I think that's a really, really interesting point. And if we did take these extreme examples of entering into the bodies uh, and minds and situations, social situations, of people dramatically different uh, than our personal day-to-day uh, -day realities appear to be. Uh, that, that's what empathy really would be. And mm -hmm. no one can tell me, at least, that that's what's happening or that people are in any way capable of it. So we should just put it down because we can't pick it up. You know, and it, it, it really, yeah. I think some more examples like that can flesh out. And also, I think there are some interesting exercises. Uh, right after that sort of idea occurred to me, um, a kind of a beautiful uh, model uh, came to mind of, uh, and I'm not sure what the mechanism for how you and I deliver that, but I think this is a no country idea. Um, to put forward maybe for next episode, but it, it builds on this, and I think it could be the basis of um, a further imaginative challenge, but also a kind of rehabilitative uh, empathy fitness uh, program of, of helping ourselves get more able to, to, to make these kind of imaginative jumps. Um, it's a kind of social form of imagination rather than artistic and, and psychological uh, in a personal sense. It, 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 I think it's a beautiful extension of that because you, you've made a very clear case that, and if you do a linguistic analysis of empathy, you, you do not find the straightforward connection to imagination that you've just made. I find that absolutely astounding. Um, it clearly, in order to exist as an idea at all, it has to be a form of imaginative projection and connection. But imagination is, is not, does not appear linguistically. And I think that's because it doesn't appear philosophically. You know, it's not part of what we're thinking about because we're really not thinking about it very well. You know? Um, 
I love that. No, you got me hyped on this idea. The connection between imagination and empathy makes so much sense in terms of the people who I've seen online who, well, this was the key issue that we were talking about in our empathy episodes, is that why do people who use the word empathy so much or empathetic, why do they seem to have so little empathy for people? And it's because it's the easy the kind of easy bake oven version of of empathy where you can pick something up off the rack and you've got the people who you're supposed to defend and the people who you're supposed to go after and that makes you empathetic whereas we're saying that empathy like imagination is a more organic process where you are actually able to take situations one at a time project yourself into those situations and then you know, make value judgments based off of that. You know, sometimes you're going to align with the people who've picked their ideology off a rack, <coughs> but sometimes you're not. Well, and and, and to so. tie this back to, uh, I think, a re- the very, very important uh, starting point for this episode of the relationship between Bateson's unpredictability and McKenna's notion of novelty, Real empathy as an imaginative act wouldn't have a conclusion or implications instantly drawn. You know? I mean, we don't, I mean, take your Tucker Carlson example, for instance. What were, what real empathy would be is just to simply put him into this other situation or for him to be able to project himself into that situation and the conclusions to, to not be drawn. We would, they would unfold, they would unfold, we, uh, something would, would change, his thinking would change. But let's not preempt that experience. What we want is the, the label of being empathetic. We choose kindness without the experience mm-hmm. of it. We want to short change the psychological experience, the effort, you know. We, uh, we don't want to make our own blowgun darts. We want to just buy them and then throw them out when they're, you know, when they're bent. You know, we always want something handed to us rather than having that experience, that imaginative experience of you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Well, you know, all of this becomes a kind of layered, barnacled, cliched system of what we appear to be rather than what we really go through the experience of empathy as is an imaginative engaged experience of relationship with someone or some other perspective you know uh, I think that's a fascinating thing to pursue and uh, off mic I'll, I'll tell you about this uh, kind of a workshop idea in, in a sense uh, it's something that people would need yeah, to do yeah. some thinking about but uh, I at some point want to find a mechanism for incorporating that into our deliberations and explorations because I think it builds beautifully on this idea but uh, I think out of all the imaginative challenges although this wasn't uh, as funny and as uh, you know flamboyant as some of your response I think that there has been something Mm -hmm. very powerful and practical achieved in connecting empathy with imagination and I say again to people mm-hmm. who are doing any kind of analysis of how empathy appears in modern culture, whether it be mainstream media, academic media, what have you, 
you do not see the powerful connection to the notion and the word of imagination that, that David has made clear. And I think that there's no way to support a, a clear understanding of empathy without imagination. Uh, I don't know what people are talking about. 100%. Uh, so something important has yep. happened there. Excellent. Yeah, no, that all sounds great to me. Sounds really cool. I don't have anything to add right now. I'd have to think more about all of this. I'm turning over the idea of empathy and imagination. It's got the gears spinning. So I'm I think you've done good work there. You don't need to do any more. That was a very, very important achievement, and I think that that shows uh, listeners the, the value of, of doing a little thinking in real time because that fleshed that out for me in a way that, that was, uh, I think that was just beautifully said and very simply said, very simply said. You know, important things aren't always complicated. Uh, they're, they're more difficult to execute, but not necessarily complicated to right. understand. So well done. The COVID hangover is working for Thanks. you. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> well, cross my fingers that I don't get it for quite some time because it's not fun. But life isn't all about fun. Sometimes it's about uh, contracting COVID and then dealing with it. Do you have a tool tip? I do, I do. I'm conscious that this has been a good, rich, uh, long episode. Uh, I think what I'll do with the tool, because it's another big one. I've really, my uh, my brain, psyche, soul uh, has been humming along lately. And this is uh, in a different register. It's it's is I think is as important as uh, the disappearing inventory. Um, so I'll float it here, and then we can maybe unpack it. And that is very uh, very applicable uh, verb uh, next time because I think it is a really big cool idea. But occasionally I uh, find my mind turning to my stepfather. And I was not close to him. Uh, He was a difficult person to know, Um, a very curious figure in my life. But he did give me two practical ideas that were tools. Uh, One was the to-do list. Uh, He was the one who introduced me to that idea. Very simple idea, but he, he really made a point of that. And I've been thinking about that, about how helpful that is. But also I've come to the conclusion that to-do lists can uh, actually be ways of not getting things done. Uh, They become management issues or or, or a subject, a focus of management unto themselves. I think they can actually inhibit uh, getting things done. So I've been kind of revising my view of that. But the other big idea uh, he got me started at 13 with a file cabinet, the filing cabinet idea. And I, I find that a little bit harder to dismiss than the to-do list. Uh, I have one, I'm looking at mine right now, it's a four-door file cabinet. It's difficult to move. It's the big, it's one of three bits of furniture that I, uh, you know, really need help moving when I have moved. Uh, it's a big deal. But it's very helpful. And yet, I think, like the to-do list, it's a way of almost losing information, of not, it works against itself. 
and I've been, been struggling with that idea. And while I was out for a walk before I damaged my calf, I thought to myself, what would it be like to have a completely transparent file cabinet? Transparent. That's an interesting word, by the way, to think about, particularly with transparent. You know, think about that today as well. I think that's interesting. Uh, always looking at individual words. But I want to put forward that idea. Uh, I'm now going to put that into the hopper with my, my book on memory about something we should be striving for as a metaphor for our minds and how we engage with the world. That file cabinets are beautiful ideas. They're inherent in the idea of, of, of the record that we've been talking about, about an externalized and enduring sense of history. They're obviously, you know, part of the computer idea. To some extent, they're, they're I would argue, the two, one of two major functions that the notion of a computer is based on. Because uh, you really can't, don't, can't have computation without memory. And filing cabinets are, are about memory in certain ways. Or are they? You know, are they? Um, I, I have some thoughts about that. Maybe there are ways of, of not uh, remembering. Uh, maybe there are ways of, uh, mm. you know, I think that to-do lists and file cabinets have a kind of subtlety to them that we need to think about. And these metaphors, and, and they're concrete metaphors, uh, extend across our lives in many ways. You know, some of the things we claim to be focused on most directly, I wonder if we're not actually seeking refuge from or outright hiding from. Uh, but I want to plant the seed of a completely transparent filing cabinet as something to think about in terms of how our minds and memories work. Because something is fundamentally wrong. My, this, my starting point with my, my book on memory is something is fundamentally wrong with our understanding of memory because we have no more understanding of it than we did 2,000 years ago. Uh, and that is literally true. There is no consensus view that has really clarified what we're talking about, and it's, it's a mess. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think the transparent filing cabinet, think about, try to actually visualize that. I think it's, they're so bulky and rectangular, right angle, you know, they're, if you imagine it being completely clear, you know, does that mean the contents mm -hmm. are then completely how does that work I just would like people to to think about that I'm it's a new thought for me I'm I'm trying to work on that but transparency and immediacy seems to be very fundamental to the notion of memory rather than going looking for something you know I think that's where the problem is mm. it's the access it's about time it's about transparency, and transparency is a very, very odd, odd idea, if you let that really resonate a little bit. So that's my tool. That, that brings up a couple of thoughts. The first one is the nature of what memory is in and of itself, which is much more closer to a performance than a than a filing system, you know? So I love this idea of the transparent, the idea of putting something in a filing cabinet as a way to forget it rather than remember it. 
is something that I'd have to meditate on, but it feels right to me. Second thing, the first joke I ever made up when I was six years old, I was in the car with my parents and I said, hey, what do you call a ghost's mom and dad? And they said, what? And I said, transparents. Fantastic. So I, was, I thought of it because I was looking, I had, a, I had a thing of scotch tape, I can't remember what I was making with scotch tape, but it says transparent on the, on the, it's a very vivid memory. My first, one of my first acts of spontaneous creation that wasn't just me mimicking something that I'd seen on TV or read in a book. Got a six-year-old day, but I'd love to see a photograph of that. That's a beautiful example. Yeah, that, that's, that's wonderful on so many levels. That's just wonderful on so many levels. Um, well, we're, we're going to explore that further because I, I'm, I'm also sort of in parallel making a list of potential workshops that you and I can run. I don't, given the geographic distance, I'm not sure how that works, but I do want to, that, that's one of my dreams for No Country is that we, we would be doing uh, something in that sort of line physically and educationally. It's something like the Esalen Institute, or you know, via some means, that yeah. I, I think that we're 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 evolving to a point where we've got some some real topic frameworks. And I certainly uh, welcome your uh, support and, and you know the the education that you provide me for this this uh, meditation on memory because I think you've got some great. Uh, angles. I mean, every time we talk about it, I, I, you come up with some new thing that gets me thinking. So, uh, some good things to explore there. But uh, let's let's continue the, the for next episode. The tool will be a further exploration of the notion of the transparent filing cabinet. Whether or not memory is is in that sense a means, and we could look at that in a larger historic sense, a way of hiding information. Uh, as a well as way, a way of finding it, um, but there's lots to lots to talk about there. I, I think that's a as tools should be. I think you know tools shouldn't be always something you can break down in, in one episode. You know, right? I agree. And my tip is uh, is an odd one, uh, but I really think it's important. I think that I don't know if I could sell uh, Gen Z on this. Uh, I'd like to because I think it is important uh, but I, I think it's a message that, that people your age can definitely get with and I think our uh, listeners in that demographic are already well on top of that but uh, I'm always very interested in cave systems and I was doing you know some little uh, research into that and I uh, also the, the, the history of Route 66 which is a big. I've written about that. It's it's an important part of where I live, and, and it's an important part of where you live. One of my big moments in, in my young young life was in Hydro, Oklahoma, when I saw a small cyclone mm -hmm. getting off the Greyhound bus on what um, still then part of Route 66. But the Merrimack Caverns in Sullivan, Missouri, were are, are still fabulous to sort of check out. And they were a key part of the whole Route 66 culture. And I was watching a documentary about it, and what I didn't know, and I learned from the documentary, was there was they were very popular for quite a number of, of years, as in decades, 
as a, a, a place where, where the locals would go to square dance. Square dancing in the Merrimack Caverns was a big deal. It was a big social deal, it was a big singles event, and I thought to myself, you know, that sounds really cool. Square dancing when I was a kid was what we were forced to do sometimes on rainy days in third grade. And, you know, it was a nightmare, you know, it was just, we hated it, you know. Um, but I think there's a place for all of us to revisit some traditions from the past in very conscious sort of ways. Whereas, you know, if there was a chance for me to do square dancing in the Merrimack Caverns now, I would jump at that because I think that would be a way of empathetically and therefore imaginatively time traveling. You know, and I think that we yeah. need to think yeah. about that, particularly given our obsession with revising history and, you know, picking and choosing what we like about the past. You know, we want the anesthesia <coughs> and the antibiotics, but we don't like certain social, you know, etiquettes and protocols and behaviors, you know. Well, that doesn't, that's not how things work, you know. But if we are going to have any kind of uh, revisionist notions of history, we need to be more imaginatively connected with people of the past, their values, their behaviors, their uh, traditions and cultures. Uh, so I think that we would all benefit from embracing some sort of traditional thing. And we can look outside our own culture, lowercase c, and doing that, you know? Um, right. And I think that's really important. So square dancing in the Merrimack Caverns is kind of a, you know, a my gloss on a bigger thing of look back in time and if you do have a chance to uh, you know get involved in some traditional thing well we'll do it you know um, it's not going to hurt you and it may give you some empathetic imaginative connection that you wouldn't get any other way excellent I love that in fact that'll probably be the name of the episode Square dancing in the Merrimack Caverns. It's got a nice roof to it. And it, you know, it ties to other stuff that we've been talking about too with icons and heritage and being able to connect to that. I don't want to go too off topic, but just just as a quick aside, I, I did want to say that that's one of the things we'll have to touch on next episode too is, you know, getting like how does a Civil War reenactor feel about modern society? You know what I mean? Like, are they they have a connection to the past so where where are they psychologically well i think that's exactly the you know it, it, and from a <laughs> magical point of view what we mean by ma you know one of many things that we mean by magic is that immersive sense of connection that little details are the things that uh, that really matter you know, earlier, uh, for people who um, maybe have missed the episode, one of David's imaginative challenges was to, uh, he was looking after an eccentric billionaire like Howard Hughes, a recluse, who imagined that he was living in the 1980s, and David's challenge was to keep him convinced of that and to not let any of, of 2022 creep in. And, you know, it, it could be in that scenario that it would be one little thing that would blow it open, you know? David chose a, a much bigger canvas example there, but it could be something very small, you know? And 
I, I think that, that those are the things that we really need to be alert to and to think like set designers in movies of, of really immersing ourselves in as much information about the past. If, if our goal is to you know, revise history and make claims about what people should have been doing then as if, I, mean, I don't know why people want to do that at all because I don't know who we're speaking to. I think those people are dead. Uh, but that seems to be an obsession of our time right now. And the only answer to that is, is more imagination. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Before we get to your dream, I wanted to mention my COVID yeah. dream, which is very profound and initiatory. When I was in the depths of that initial night, when I still didn't know that I had COVID, but I knew something was, was very wrong. It was a very uncomfortable, sweat-soaked night. I had a dream that a, a gray demon with wings ripped itself out of my body and flew away. So there's a lot of interesting interpretations of that. There's the most obvious one. But I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about it because I did um, the next day and to a certain extent today as well, uh, my perception of time, and I'm not sure if I've read this anywhere about it being specifically a COVID thing, but it might be. My perception of time was way, way, way slowed down. Way slowed down. It was unbelievable. My perception of 10 or 15 minutes was turning out to be two or three minutes. So what we know about time is that it it depends very much upon your perception of it and I'm just if listeners want to email in with any thoughts about this uh, I'm kind of juggling these ideas of you know a, a creature leaving me which I perceive as being real in the imaginative sense uh, the time dilation and the uh, yeah, and then this kind of perhaps synthetic disease that was working its way through my body at the time. So I yeah, love that's, that, that's and I, I have uh, yeah. uh, a homework assignment for you based on this. Uh, I I want cool. you to think of a, a classic four to six panel uh, newspaper comic strip. Uh, approach and I want you to try to draw that uh, and yeah. if you need any further you know inspiration in terms of defining that and, and bringing that creature that that sense that moment and the time dilation to life uh, I went I for some reason I, I rediscovered uh, I don't know that much about H.P. Lovecraft, really. I've only read the major, major things, and I'm certainly not a Lovecraftian at all. But I, I reread his description of Cthulhu, and I thought that is the most explicit and clear explanation, description of anything that I've ever read in my life. And the fact that it doesn't exist is a real interesting imaginative act. But I think you need to mm-hmm. do a, a four-panel cartoon comic drawing of that 
to bring that to life. I think that's a really important moment. I've tried to do that with some of my malarial uh, uh, fantasies from the past, the, some of those fever dream visions. And it's very, very instructive because you, you, are, you are going into some unexplored terrain in your psyche. You're going off-road, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I will do that. That sounds cool. I've been trying to get more into art anyhow. Um, for the dream, I'm actually, my recorder is running out of space. We had a really good episode this time. So I'm going to turn mine off, but you can keep recording. And uh, yeah, just take us out on okay, the Okay, well, this is uh, an extension of, of, of a phenomenon that I mentioned where language has really come, uh, come to the fore. And, and in my personal dream record history going back decades, this is very, very unusual. Uh, it was an enormously realistic dream where I had uh, been recruited uh, and I was very honored to, to, to join a, a band of actual real musicians called Fireproof Hotel, which I thought was a really cool name. And for people who remember the 1970s uh, Los Angeles group War, they were really big uh, for me. I really, uh, they had, you know, Lowrider, uh, Why Can't We Be Friends, Spill the Wine. They had a kind of Angelino, uh, Pachuco sort of sound, uh, Soul Pachuco sort of sound. And we were living in this old, just absolutely decrepit L.A. hotel right off the, um, the 10 freeway and recording and here are a couple of the song titles that survived my waking up be at the rendezvous in mazatlan i like the imperative there puntango not puntang but puntango boulevard's end and then a weird kind of departure uh, from the Angelino sort of uh, Latino sound into a kind of a country biker bar vibe, Double Wide Woman. 